This is a Federal News Network podcast. As we continue our look back on the lessons of 9-11, we focus on the intelligence community and how it changed. Robert Cardillo is the former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, now the president of the Cardillo Group. He tells executive editor Jason Miller about how the whole apparatus pivoted overnight. Broadly speaking, the, the agency quite quickly moved to a war footing and realized that, okay, we, what we did yesterday is not what we need to do today and won't be what we need to do tomorrow. So let's get ready you know, for that. What we know is coming as a, as a huge demand signal uh, from, our, from the nation, but obviously from the military as well. Whether it's NGA or more broadly the IC community, really, what kind of changes did you see over the last 20 years? How is it different today than it, than it was yesterday, than the day before, et cetera, et cetera? Just coincidentally, I was hired in 1983 out of college. So I had, you know, 18 years of service, almost. Actually, I came in August 29th, 83. So I had 18 years and, you know, 10 days of service prior to 9-11. And then I retired in 2019. I had 18 years of service after uh, 9-11. I would describe my first 18 years as, again, rewarding, dedicated, uh, purposeful mission, but but most of the work, because that's what the questions were about, was quite frankly, what happened yesterday. Okay, where were the Russian ships yesterday? You know, where are the Chinese planes yesterday? And, and you know, or today, I, I don't mean to say we were always doing yesterday, but you know, we, we were kind of in a documentation business about describing the world as it is, making sure that, that our policymakers and, and war fighters had a good understanding of adversary capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. After 9-11, that was necessary, but no longer sufficient. We had to pivot to, and what will happen tomorrow. Now, again, as soon as I say that, Jason, I can hear my intelligence brethren say, Robert, that was always our mission. And I go, I know that. But it was just so much more compelling because of where our forces were going to include intelligence community officials, you know, agents from CIA, you know, moving into Afghanistan, that Sending them reports about where the Taliban, you know, was yesterday is interesting, but not what they needed. What they needed to know is where would they be, you know, in six hours and 12 hours and 24 hours. And so what ended up becoming called anticipatory intelligence as our tradecraft down the road, I mean, I think it took another 10 years for us to even craft that, that term, to me was the, was the compelling pivotal change of 9-11. Because I think anticipatory intelligence is a great term. I have to admit, I don't think I've ever heard that one before, but that seems to be what you're kind of getting toward. I can say with confidence that the intelligence community, broadly speaking, took on its shortfalls, recognized where we had uh, not adhered to tradecraft principles the way that we should have. And and this is the most difficult part because many have described 9-11 as a failure of imagination, which I'm comfortable with that phrasing because I think we had collectively let ourselves stay in a mode of, of what we call mirror imaging, right? What would we do if we were the adversary? What would what would I do to order undermine, you know, US capabilities? And even though analysts did contribute to the PD president's daily brief item that was released afterwards during the commission from 6 August, you know, 2001 that described the potential for terrorists to use planes as a weapon. I think what happened afterwards is that we took on those lessons. And uh, I'm also 
fond of saying it's not important to learn a lesson. I mean, it's important, but what's more important is if you can apply it. And I think the IC, the intelligence community, did apply it through a, a restructuring and a rededication to its tradecraft. And, and at least as importantly, and this goes too long to the line of, of the lack of imagination, if, if you were to ask me, Jason, what was the level of integration in the intelligence community in my 18 years prior, as composed to my 18 years after 9-11, it's almost night and day. We were very comfortable in our agencies and with the walls around them and the fences around the walls. And after 9-11, and don't get me wrong, it wasn't uh, a walk through the park, we broadly understood that those walls and those fences were not just barriers to our information development or anticipatory assessments, et cetera. They were barriers to the nation getting the information it needed to be you know, successful, defended, uh, aware of threats and, and mitigating them. And even if I break down the 18 years after my, you know, after 9-11 for me, I can think of those as three or four or five chapters in which we got better and better and better at integrating our capabilities in a way that created the the outcomes that that the nation demanded uh, and deserved. And uh, and I'm quite proud of that evolution of the community. Generally speaking, you know, based on your experience, where do you think it needs to go next? Here's where I hope I see the next evolution and i've i've written about this jason and i contributed to the the csis task force report that came out in january this year and our most prominent recommendation to the community was that it needed to better acknowledge better leverage and better um build upon what is you know generically called open source uh, information and the tables in my mind have been nearly reversed whereas robert cardillo the analyst in the 80s and 90s would have done all of his work or 95 percent of his work in a classified environment with classified materials and sources and write a classified report and then at the very end i would look around in whatever my open source, you know, purview was and see if I could sprinkle anything on top. And I believe that needs to fundamentally flip, uh, that we need to do a better, we, the intelligence community need to do a much better job at accessing and leveraging and, and, and look, filtering. I mean, there's, there's a lot of non fraud and misuse and manipulation out there. So a lot of vetting needs to be done, but but build that baseline understanding of what's happening in the world and then spend, you know, that increment of time on by tailoring and focusing classified capabilities, you know, where you need them. And so that's the change I hope that we see. It is it's a little frightening for the intelligence community to think of that because it's not comfortable um, and and it's hard and it's. Like I said, it's messy out there. But if we don't get a handle on that reality of of a connected world and broadly speaking, uh, the predominant amount of information that's that's available, I think the IC risks its relevance over time, because consumers will you know choose to get 
their insights uh, elsewhere. Robert Cardillo is former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and now the president of the Cardillo Group. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And subscribe to The Federal Drive on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop 
and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. 
Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.